So, Bob, I thought I would ask you some questions that some patrons have for you and me. Yeah. And some people actually ask questions on Facebook specifically to you. Is that significant, Facebook, as a medium? It is, for us anyway. Okay. Um, for, that's the main way we communicate. Like I, Oh, really? Just the other day, I put up this question on Facebook. I said, okay, listeners, who has questions for Bob? A bunch of people responded. Wow. Yeah. So I want to get into that, but this is only going to be for patrons of the podcast. Ooh. So if you're not a patron of the podcast... Um, you, and you want to hear the rest of this episode, you have to become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of our podcast to get access to this episode and like 300 other episodes that are just for patrons and arguably they're our best episodes, many of which are with Bob. So do that now. Become a patron. Do it. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. So, Patron Anonymous, she says, Since exploring my complex PTSD through individual therapy and DBT, I have noticed a theme of expressing hypersexuality in my childhood. Even from the ages as young as eight years old, I can remember hypersexual behaviors such as watching excessive amounts of porn, reading sex stories, finding my mother's sex, to sex toys and using them in private, and having frequent sexual fantasies. Huh. These behaviors were also coupled with extreme mood swings as a child and teenager, also parentification and other responses to my trauma. This trauma also included sexual abuse growing oh. up. I wanted to know your thoughts on how hypersexuality presents. So, Bob, what do you think about that so it's kind of a, a not a specific question yeah. but but any thoughts on what she's saying it. well um yeah first thing is i have very little training in sex and sex therapy so everything i say here um is just my point of view and um i didn't hear anything that that person described that i would have called hypersexuality how do you know how what what tells you and and I think maybe what they might be saying is that their response to um, anxiety or um, upset or unrest at home were to soothe through sex. Sounds fucking creative to me. Right. Like helpful, soothing, comforting, and you deserve soothing, comforting, especially if you're in a trauma situation. So are we sure? Right. About the self-diagnosis? Right. So we have to be sex positive and not sex negative. We yeah. have to recognize that our society is sex negative. We have to recognize yeah. that even our industry is sex negative. If you presented these behaviors to you know a crowd of people in, my, in our profession, I'm guessing a good number of them would have some gasps. But I don't hear anything, anonymous patron, in what you're talking about as so we have a we have a clinical term called hypersexuality, mm -hmm. and essentially it's compulsive sexuality, mm -hmm. meaning that you have intrusive thoughts that you an intrusive motivation that isn't really in line with what you want. Um, it gets in the way of your life. It it harms you somehow. Like you know, hypersexual people might masturbate uh, twenty five times a day. And they don't go to work or they're masturbating while they're at their desk at work, potentially being caught by mm, HR. And, risky. Yeah. Or they're searching sex worker sites at work. I've had clients like this. Yeah. Or they're trolling for sex workers from midnight until 8 a.m. Right. before they go to work. They don't get any sleep. Right. Or... 
they are uh, in porn shops while they're married and threatening their marriage, even though they don't really want to, you know, and it's not it's not something that uh, is in line with their overall goals in their life. They don't feel good about it. You know, it, it's one thing and it's really hard for us to tease that out because we're sexually shamed. And so it's hard to t- tease out. Okay, am I just shaming myself for my natural sexual behavior, mm-hmm. or do I truly have a compulsive uh, disorder yeah. regarding something, but it just happens to be sex? Right. Those are really hard things to figure out, and yeah. I've had those conversations with clients, and sometimes it takes months to yeah, tease out to tease because it out. it's yeah. not easy. So I totally agree with what Bob is saying. Is the first thing we want to say is there's nothing that you said uh, without details. You know, it's hard yeah. for us to know, just, yeah, but. Right. There's nothing you said in terms of your childhood and your, you know, teenage sexual behavior that is abnormal. Uh, you know, you might be above average, but there's nothing disordered about it. And there's 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 nothing there's nothing really unusual. You know, you uh, you watched porn uh, as an eight year old. Now, you know, that's above average, but it's not inherently terrible uh it, it's it's a concern maybe it's an expression of your sexual abuse that you went through maybe maybe it is a way to soothe yourself maybe. that uh in the scheme of your life was an escape that you that you had um that you if you didn't have that it would have been some other uh thing that might have been self-destructive like cutting or i don't know maybe or something yeah. Re- reading sex stories certainly as a as a young person that is common it's fascinating isn't yeah. it finding your mother's sex toys and using them in private yeah t- totally normal <laughs> um having frequent yeah. sexual fantasies yeah totally normal, normal. now other eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds might say well i never had that and that's fine too but plenty of eight-year-olds do um, whether is- they've been sexually abused or not is the age which people get exposed to pornography skewing down? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah because of the internet. Because of the internet, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, when we were kids, well, I wonder, you know, I mean, at least I know that the amount of porn and the uh, hardcore nature of porn yeah. is definitely skewing, skewing. younger. Because, yeah. you know, when we were kids, it was Playboy magazine mm-hmm. was pretty much, and you would find it under your brother's bed or something. And uh, so I... Uh, but now, you know, every five-year-old has a phone and they all have access, <laughs> you know. But but most kids don't look it up because yeah. they're not interested they, in they it. Don't, they're not drawn. Yeah. And they're – or they're mildly curious yeah. and then they're like, eh, you know. Yeah. But plenty of kids masturbate. Yeah. Pl- I mean, I don't hear that from eight-year-olds, but I hear – from a lot of adults saying, yeah, I masturbated when yeah, I was no, when I was five, when right. I was 10. Um, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but, no. you know, and I also looked at porn, you know. So anyway, there's nothing that you're saying that's uh, diagnosable. Um, we'd have to do a full assessment. Obviously, we can't do that. Now, you know, if it's excessive, it's a, if it's a compulsion, then, you know, it's something to look at. It's not something to shame yourself for. Um, compulsion is a clinical term, not an emotional term. Yeah. It's a it's a term meaning that you have a intrusive motivation to do something. It's an itch that has to be itched that you have no yeah. control over. You know, like like right now, I have a desire to to uh, drink my water. For right. example, I, my mouth is a little parched, 
but I can withstand that itch, you know, because I'm talking and I can't drink the water while I'm talking. Right. So I'm I'm going to continue talking and I'm okay. I'm not I don't have tension in my body. It's just a, it's just a choice. I would like to drink the water, but I'm not going to and my my body isn't feeling that tense of like build up of like shit you're you got to do it you got to do it when you have a compulsion your body start mounts in terms of its uh, tension and anxiety and all you can think about well and and so if that's happening for you then we might label that a compulsion we might but uh lots of times when we resist impulse the the urge to do the thing will go up at least initially so it's maybe it's a degree it's a question of intensity but i think in the Subtext: If we're hearing it right in in the way this email or this message is written, there's a lot of self judgment and shame. Right. And um, uh, I think it's really good that this person is asking these questions, not because I think there's merit in the questions, but because I think there's merit in the exploration of what are her feelings about her own behavior. And um, I liked how you put it. You said, "With the compulsion, it's when my behavior is not in line with my goals." You didn't say it's not in line with my values. You said it's not in line with my goals. I think that is such a concrete way to describe compulsion, true compulsion, that it's it makes it harder to miss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If my goal is to uh, masturbate, you know, three times a day instead of ten, and look at porn twenty minutes a day instead of three hours, mm-hmm. fantasize about sex only while masturbating and mm-hmm. not like. Uh, half of the day at work that it distracts me um, and I set out to do that goal and I can't help it but to, but it because it's intrusive it's yeah. like it's just it's just you know yeah. boom into my brain then you know that's the definition of a compulsion yeah. now we don't shame compulsions you know plenty yeah. of people have compulsions <laughs> uh, they're, they're really quite common yeah and if it's not interfering with your life which you know I could see it potentially not there's nothing wrong with masturbating 25 times a day. There's nothing wrong with looking at porn three hours a day. There's nothing wrong with fantasizing about sex while you're at work. Uh, it's certainly totally possible to be a productive human being and happy. Uh, but having said all that, it is common for people having experienced abuse, particularly sexual abuse, to have a complex around sexuality. They yeah. they have a lot of associations with sex, and, and they were introduced to sex at an early age yeah. that uh, they had to accommodate that by having sort of a five-year-old version of sex and attachment and fear and identifying with the abuser and, yeah. you know, so it it forever alters one's relationship with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't condemn anyone to doom, but it, it just it just means things are going to be a little different. And uh, and so it's possible that as you recover from your traumas, that whatever kind of complex you have around it and or the compulsion will, will diminish. Um, hard to know. Uh, either they'll diminish or you'll just welcome your sexuality into your life in a way mm. that is um, non-complex, you know. Uh, let's say you have, you know, let's say nice. you recover and you're like, because this actually happens. So in the BDSM world, uh, there will be people who have recovered or are, are recovering from being sexually abused or, or physically abused as children. And they know that as they're engaging in BDSM and they're being beat by their dom, they are reminded and having flash flashbacks of what they went through as a child but they but they they know they're in control and at any time they can say the safe word and and they're okay 
they know it, it turns them on in a way that maybe is, has something to do with the fact that their uncle uh, did effectively turn on their f- physiology system when they were children. Uh, and it doesn't mean that it's pathological or wrong. It, 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 for them, it's, it's integrating into their, their lives. There's an ownership over it that, that they have that, that is really quite beautiful. And, yeah. And so exciting uh, and fun and right. zesty and erotic and delicious. Yeah. So who, who knows, you know, for you. And I really hope, you know, that you're in therapy getting the healing that you deserve in that area. Yeah. Um, upper tier patron anonymous. She says, what are the effects of long term sexual abuse? So this is in line. Um, this is something that I am struggling to understand in my sessions with my psychologist. It's hard for me to talk about it. My psychologist says it was long-term ritualistic sexual abuse. He has talked about the biological, emotional, and physical responses to try to help me move past self-blame, guilt, and shame, but I can't seem to move past it. I'm interested in hearing it from another perspective to see if I can move on. Bob, what do you think? I don't know enough about sex therapy to have much of a comment here, but I'll say one of the long-term effects for this person clearly is shame, self-blame, dystonic uh, sexual feelings um, and they deserve a good rich erotic life and um, I think this is a really good question I don't know what your take on it is but depending on how we respond to this this person might want to talk to someone who's got training and experience with sex therapy this is a different person by the way yeah I got it yeah okay yeah yeah um, maybe your therapist needs an adjunct therapist to, to help you with this for sure um, but the, the therapist does sound validating, which I appreciate. Right. Yeah. Um, the part of this that I'll say is, you know, I get emails like this almost every day. Really? Not in this, but the, the notion of people saying they're in therapy and they're struggling and they're saying, you know, how do I move past it? You know, these phrases, I can't seem to move past it. Um, I can't move on, she says. No. Oh. And these are uh, statements that I get. I totally get why you would have that impulse. I'm just like, you know, I'm trying to move on. Please help me move on. I'm in ther- I've been in therapy for a couple of years. Um, I can't seem to move on. I can't seem to move past it. Right. And uh, this sucks for life. And, f- you know, I'm sorry to say this, but um, it takes a long time to recover potentially the, in- the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, I hope, uh, you know, people hearing from Bob – Bob went through a lot as a child. He hasn't healed from it. And he's gone through more therapy than you have out there. <laughs> he's a therapist. He's he, he's at the pinnacle of the amount of work and time and academic uh, effort and um, hum- humility and study. And um, he, has, he has done 10 times than anyone else of you out there have done and a thousand times more than some of you. Uh, and he's not done. Yeah. And every day he struggles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you've been through significant abuse, long-term ritualistic sexual abuse, as you're saying, Oof. upper tier anonymous patron, um, uh, it, you know, you're likely going to be, you're likely never going to move past it. And I know that that fucking sucks. Yeah. And it is one of the true tragedies of the human condition that those people who have been through the worst suffer the longest regardless of how much effort they put into it. Now, that does not mean we don't try. Uh, you can um, you can mitigate 
you know, 50, 75 percent, 90 percent of it. But even if you're left with 10 percent, that 10 percent fucking sucks and will plague you every day. (laughs) Um, And and all of us have traumas, essentially, that we grew up with and and we're never going to recover from them. You know, uh, any kind of personality problem I have, uh, (laughs) avoidant personality, slight preoccupied, some narcissism. Uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a distrust of other people, not wanting to be close, Ooh, yeah. uh, toxic masculinity. You know, let's pile it all up. I'm, I'm positive in my final seconds I'll exhibit some of that, you know. <laughs> um, it, it's just going to happen. And, and, and that the fucking su- And it, it sucks particularly for people who are struggling daily with their symptoms. When you say this, you mean to communicate to uh, this person and everybody else that accepting that is a way to relieve yourself of some of the pressure and stress that you feel? Like, I've got to get better? (sighs) Yeah, I guess. What? That'd be nice. You want to be reassuring, I think. Mm, I want to be reassuring, but that isn't my main... That's not what I mean, reassuring. That's not what I mean. You want to invite people into an acceptance of how it is to be a person. Yeah, and a... Right. Uh, an acceptance of how much it sucks. Yeah. You know, it's, and that's not reassuring, I don't think. No, no. But it relieves the effort of that. trying to make it different. That one. You know, and the pain of it not working, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Yeah. So um, you can do a lot, and people do, and that's why we have therapy, and that's why we have long-term therapy. Uh, but the notion that you're going to move on and that you're going to move past it is... Not likely right-headed. I, I'm kind of curious how that person would define the, the term move on. What right. the hell that means? What people mean by it usually is I won't think about it anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, right. It won't bother me anymore. Yeah. I won't have reactions that are related to it anymore. Mm-hmm. I won't be sad about uh-huh. it anymore. It won't impact. Yeah. yeah. It won't scare – it won't sort of rock me to my core when I think about it anymore. Um, that one's mm. possible to move past of PTSD uh, with proper PTSD treatment. But um, but the overall thing – you know, I, I have close friends and, and clients who went through significant abuse growing up. And, you know, they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, some of them. I know people in their 80s. Oh. I, I have – I have a you know close friend in their 80s who went through significant abuse as a child, is a therapist, has done therapy for 60 years now, and is is like you, just you know eternally dedicated to this thing and has been for a long time, mm. and still has I don't know probably like 70 percent of the trauma reactivity. <laughs> so, but that doesn't mean that. They're not happy, you know, yeah. and that they're not like, uh, well, this is who I am, and my yeah. spouse gets it, yeah. and, and uh, my life is worthwhile, and yeah. I I like being alive, or I like what I've experienced, and I appreciate my efforts and my experiences, yeah. and it doesn't mean I don't have a life worth living, right? And tomorrow I'm gonna have a bad moment, yeah. and I'm gonna slip into a hole, yeah. but I'm gonna come out of it just yeah. like I have tens of thousands of times before. Anonymous patron, she writes, this is a long one. Oh. I'm dating a therapist that has a disorganized and preoccupied attachment. So she actually wanted to ask you specifically sure. this, Bob. So she's saying, I'm dating a therapist yeah. that has disorganized and preoccupied attachment. 
he has past trauma with an abusive alcoholic father mm-hmm. and a mother with a history of mental illness, and they were both clearly narcissistic. He grew up in a very non-controlled environment. He once had to make his mother throw up her sleeping pills because she had tried to kill herself. Wow. He heard countless arguments, fights, where he stepped in and tried to calm them both down. He has an amazing antenna for reading people's moods. Mm. He's always aware of people around him, like a satellite that senses feelings. He's also been burned out since he wrote his dissertation. Oh, well. I, I have avoided attachment and grew up without a good father figure. My mother raised me by herself. My father never partook in my upbringing. My mother has difficulty expressing emotions and left me a lot to my own devices when I was a child. And she often criticized me. She can be very distant and self-sufficient. And then all of a sudden she gets very clingy and wants hugs and tells me how much she misses me. I was bullied also from the age of seven, seven to 15. My therapist diagnosed me with ADHD and complex PTSD. I'm also hyper aware of people around me and how they feel. I can sense anger, tension, and irritation a mile away. We've tried to live together, but decided early on it wouldn't work. We're too different. He wants a controlled environment that's his safe space. I want music, laughter, excitement, and so on. We had problems early on, and he decided it would be best if he met with a therapist that teaches EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy, and Alternative to Violence. Have you heard of that? Alternative no. to Yeah, I don't, I've never heard of it either. Okay. I think it's some model of, of emotional regulation or something or relationship. Yeah, it makes sense. Regulation. Yeah, right. Uh, when we have fights, he can become angry, verbally abusive, and lecturing. Mm. And I turn to fight or flight and become very distant and stop responding to him which causes him in return to become even more upset and feel ignored, rejected. Basically, we become two five-year-olds that just keep, uh, that that just deep down want to be comforted, held, and understood. We have been going to an EFT therapist that teaches us techniques in functional communication, but we still fight, and it turns ugly sometimes, and the fights are just too much. It's mentally exhausting for both of us. So... What could we do when we're both in high emotional arousal states? Is there a way we can teach ourselves not to go that destructive fight spiral, not to go into that destructive fight spiral? We're both just two invisible children that just want love, attention, affirmation, and respect, but it sometimes seems so hopeless. We, will we ever be grown-ups in a fight, or will our five-year-olds always win? Bob, what do you think? Well, this is dripping with contempt for self. Hmm. Um, uh, your guys are trauma, trauma couple. You're vulnerable. Um, I don't really like the five-year-old thing. I mean, I, if you're saying we have these really um, old wounds, yeah, okay, I get it. But if you're sort of um, putting yourself down because you have wounds, then, you know, let's could, could we ease up a bit? Maybe maybe we could ease up a bit. Um I, the, one of the thoughts. Do that you it, do that with yourself, with you and Colleen, of uh, trying to ease up on your own self judgment about your inner five year olds clashing? I explicitly say to myself when I'm feeling this way. At least sometimes, I'm worthy of compassion. I'm I'm valuable. I'm. It's okay for me to want that sort of thing. Those kind of reassurances, uh, and that is really helpful when, uh, when I do that. 
I guess one of the thoughts that occurred to me was, what is this couple doing when they're not fighting? How much distance is there? One of the things that I think might happen in my relationship is that um, we fight when we're sort of like two planets in orbit, right? And if the orbit gets too far away, I think that's when we fight. And fighting is a way to find our way back to each other, right? They're pretty heated. They're pretty intense, right? They're really emotional. Um, and afterwards, I think they they also leave us, you know, kind of like stunned and shocked and tired and um, frustrated and, and vulnerable to drifting away again. So I guess I'm wondering... Are these folks, when they're not fighting, do they have the silent but deadly part of their conflict cycle? You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, and maybe the fighting is what it keeps them, in some ways, keeps them together. Yeah, I like that. Um, what are you, as you say, what are you doing when you're not fighting? Yeah. Are you are you getting closeness? Yeah. Because, one, that might eliminate some of the fights Indeed. because you're saying that some of the fights might be an effort to be close. Uh-huh. And also, it can make it worth it, right? Uh, oh, for, absolutely. For you and Colleen, oh yeah. When you're not fighting, you have closeness. Yeah. So when you do have a fight, it's like, you know, because this anonymous patroness is like, it seems so hopeless. Yeah. Well, you know, you've been in that space before. Oh sure. But when you have closeness, when you're not on the fighting clock, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, it makes it worth it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It makes okay. We have hope. You know. Okay. Yeah. Sure. We'll fight sometimes, and yeah. we'll have some bad moments. But look at what we have. Yeah. There's a reason for all this. Right. Um, yeah. The first thing I'll say is, you know, kudos to you to for going to an EFT therapist. Damn right. Um, also, kudos for your self awareness. Yes. Both of you. Um, also, kudos for taking responsibility for your part in it. You're yeah. not you're not blaming the other person. You're just like, I have this issue and that's a you know, it's a very mature, differentiated thing to do. And also kudos for deciding um to try to heal from your past for both of you. Yeah. Now, it's hard for us to know what's happening with you because, you know, you're not our clients. But, you know, in general, what I'll say is that traumatized couples, as Bob is saying, you know, it takes a long time to recover and change your reactivity. Um, you know, just as a reminder, you and Colleen have been in a cumulative how many years of therapy? Oh, um, five. Okay. And then you've been in individual therapy? 30. 30 years. So that's a long time. Yeah. And that's a lot of sessions. And that's, that's, that, <laughs> that's, a lot of, that's a lot of talking and that's a lot of trying to change a pattern. Yeah. You know? And... Uh, you know, two years of the couple therapy probably got you only certainly only certain way down the road, yeah. and another year got you another few steps. You know, it, it it's it's a long it's hard. Yeah. You know, uh, for me and in, in my personal work with my clients as well, it takes a long time. You know, yeah. these these uh, healing arcs or these changing habits arcs, uh, these changing the way you think about things arcs. You know, it, it's an arc. It takes a long time, yeah. um, and I know it's demoralizing. Yeah. Um, but remember this, Gottman, by studying actual couples, found that 69% of fights are never resolved, essentially. It's kind of a little bit more complicated than that. But essentially, most fights that you have, you know, a good couple that lasts mm-hmm. a long time, uh, the, the average is 70% of their fights do never get resolved. Never. You know, when I think about the ongoing fights I have with my wife— or uh, things we don't like about each other. <laughs> uh, we've always disliked those things about each other. Now, you know, 30% of them we managed to change and adjust and, and, and resolve. 
But some of them, they're just never going to change. And what does that mean? You know, well, it means that it's hard to change who we are as people. There are going to be inherent incompatibilities that, um, you know, maybe you don't want to be in a relationship with that person. You know, I don't know. But the person you land with, the, the best of all couples will have these. It's yeah. just, it's just the thing. It's, it's just like some days as a person, you're going to be in a bad mood. You can't say to yourself, I'm a terrible person because I, I get in a bad mood sometimes in the mm-hmm. same way you can't say I'm in a terrible relationship because we, we have oh, right. continued, you know, yeah. uh, unresolved fights that, that I'm still, uh, upset about, you know, or continue to crop up, I guess. Um, so, you know, having said that, you know, there's a ton of optimism in, in all of this, you yeah. know, like I have seen, so there's nothing that you anonymous patron are saying that if I were your therapist and, and you came to me, there's nothing in what you're saying that I would have pessimism about. Um, no. you're, you have a ton of strengths. You're taking responsibility. Yeah. You're trying, you're you have a good conceptualization of yeah. it. Um, now begins the long slog of healing yeah. and changing uh, reactivity very slowly over time. Um, think about it like uh, one way to look at it, Anonymous Page, this is you know coming from an experienced couples therapist, is that you come into therapy and you go, like, this is a very common scenario. A couple comes in to me, they say, so we got in a fight or, you know, over the weekend. Okay, let's talk about it. Well, this happened, this happened. And then I say, and then I frame it and I say, okay, it sounds like an old situation happened where you distanced and you pursued. You know, I put it into a conceptualized, conceptualized language. And then I say, if you would have done X, Y, and Z early on, you could have avoided going down the road where you ended up yelling at each other. And they'll say to me, oh, how can we remember this? And I say, you're not. <laughs> uh, this is, you know, do your best, you know, write it down or, you know, do what you can. Sure. But, you know, you're not going to re- – coming to therapy every week or every couple weeks or every month or whatever pace we're at, you, rep- repetition, practice, keep trying. The way that I, I always – and I, sometimes I tell clients this is – I remember that this from my early athletic days was – that when you condition, it's you're not trying to measure how tired you are as you're conditioning. So when you're running or you're doing, you know, burpees or whatever, it's impossible as you're doing burpees or you're doing lifts or you're doing or you're doing sprints, your heart is going to increase its rate, you're going to sweat, you're going to feel tired, your muscles are going to feel tired. That is because you're a human being. Now, the difference is as you condition more and more and more your recovery time gets shorter and shorter. So if you're out of shape um, and you do, you know, a few wind sprints, you're done for the week. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but you do uh, you do enough conditioning, you do three wind sprints, five minutes later, you're at 98% capacity for another set of three wind, wind sprints. Now you're at 80%. You can do another, you know. So in therapy... You're always going to freak out when you're upset with each other. You're always going to have that reactivity. But how fast do you recognize, I'm freaking out yeah, right now? Exactly. How fast do you say, ooh, you know, I just had that attachment injury touched upon. Right. Okay. So in the beginning of therapy, it, you're not going to realize it until I tell you. Yeah. 
as you come to me and it will be, you know, days or weeks after the fight. And, and, and then after I tell you, you'll be like, oh, yeah. yeah, and it'll make sense. You keep repeating that over and over and over again. And what you'll see is that it won't be three weeks. It will be two weeks. It will be one week. And then it'll be a day. And then eventually, maybe years down the road, you know, 15 minutes after you go, well, fuck you. And you separate and you go into your other room. And 15 minutes later, you go, oh, I'm doing that thing. That 15 minute span of time is only because you conditioned day in and day out for months and months and months. Right. And, it, and then eventually, you know, best case scenario in the moment. You're like, I'm freaking out, and it's an attachment injury, and and that's a lot of therapy and a lot of time. You and know? also not going to happen every time. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so sometimes the best we can do is a half an hour later after I freak out, I realize that um, at least part of this has to do with my own attachment reactivity, and then I can calm down and say, okay, what's the way out of this? You know what I mean? And a half an hour of damage is a lot better than 10 days of mm -hmm. silence and anger and that kind of thing. So, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I also think um, um, this person's got a good shot at recognizing, oh, the impact of my behavior on my partner. These two folks are scaring the hell out of each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, I got a Facebook question for you, Bob. I asked people on Facebook to ask you questions. Right. And here's some questions from Carly. She asks, attachment and how it influences your life and relationships. That's not really a question. No. Just kind of a title. Yeah. <laughs> but Carly wants to know what you would say after I said to you, attachment and how it influences your life and relationships. What do you think, Bob? That sums it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say that um, that is both... A very general statement and a far-reaching statement and um, totally true. Attachment is going to affect every aspect of my relation. Uh, my my uh, attachment style is going to affect most aspects of my relationships and, and, yeah. and in my case, most aspects of my life. Yeah. Can you give one nugget of how it affects your relationships in your life? Yeah. Um, two. One is it probably makes me a better therapist. Okay. Um, because uh, there's a p potential for empathy, and two, um, it, um, I'm vulnerable to um, uh, distance, distance, uh, pursue, distance, pursue, distance, pursue, and those can come up in very subtle ways, you know, today. Yeah, a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I conceptualize it that as well. Um, with especially people that matter to us. Yeah, it's right. a second to second yeah. re reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That we're, put, yeah. that we're noticing and managing and reacting to. Oh, I like that you're saying it that way. That's good. Esther says, most of the DBT therapists I have met seem to run from the idea of attachment in therapy. Oh. How does he, how do you, Bob, mm. reconcile your extensive work with DBT and the way you understand attachment? Oh, they're not incompatible to me. I was at a, a, a consultation, a supervision, uh, a team meeting uh, with Marsha Linehan once, and she said, well, you know, when you get down to it, love is the cure. And I think um, DBT can sort of feel techniquey, and good therapy is not techniquey. Good therapy might employ a skill here or a technique there, or a, but um, good therapy uh, always involves care, 
genuine compassion, empathy, interest, curiosity. We're not allowed to say love, right? Because we don't say love because we're therapists. But come on, man. It involves love. That's what I say. I say love. Yeah, I do too. Um, there's not another word for it. I mean, I guess you could say warmth and compassion. and I'm being, They're all true. But but love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's not surprising to me, Esther, that you're finding some DBT therapists run from the idea of attachment therapy because – DBT is a subset of CBT, yeah. um, and CBT therapists, the culture in, in CBT is to reject because it's not evidence-based, is according to them, which is actually not true. Yeah. There's a ton of evidence uh, to attachment in therapy. Yeah. Uh, CBT people just ignore it because they want to sell more books or more trainings or something. I don't know. Perhaps it's their own um, fears about connection that i find to be true i know people the people in my life who are the most dedicated to cbt i know are the most terrified of attachment based on their own attachment Mm -hmm. uh traumas um and sometimes they'll admit that sometimes they won't so you know it makes sense but um you know as bob puts it uh they're not incompatible at all i mean uh dbt in essence is a uh, set of skills to facilitate love and attachment. <laughs> That's the great sentence. That's the truth. Yeah. yeah. Why else would we care? You know, if if DBT truly didn't care about attachment, it'd just be like, well, why are you talking to other human beings? Yeah. Just stop. Just stop. Don't care. Right. Like, yeah. there's a solution. Yeah, do just that. Just don't care about anything. Don't yeah. care about humans. Don't, yeah. you know, just move on, become a hermit, you yeah. know, because that would certainly solve all your reactivity yeah. problems. Um, but that, of course, is not what yeah. DBT is about. You know, it's all about like yeah. one's reactivity to other human beings and and how you relate to yourself. Anyway, Marsha Linehan just published a memoir last uh, December, and um, uh, she tells her story uh, very poignant, powerful, uh, very painful in many ways, very tragic story, uh, but not just tragedy. You know, full of hope and um, curiosity and uh, success, um, personal and professional, and. Um, links her experiences to the skills that she teaches. In other words, the skills come out of things that she's learned along the way. Mm. Fascinating. To me. I don't know. She wrote a memoir. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, along the I'm in it. Along you are. Yeah. What do you mean? In the acknowledgments, she acknowledged oh. a bunch of the therapists that actually. How many know, therapists? Well, um, in that paragraph, probably twenty, twenty-five therapists. Wow. Yeah. Why? I didn't know you. People that worked for. Her. Oh, that worked in her clinic. So I, I know a lot of those names and know those people. And wow, that's... yeah, it's like fucking. I was like, wow, I made the big time, man. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So along those lines of writing a book, Bob, I want to write a book with oh, you. Right, we're going to write a book. Yeah, we do you sure want to? What it's about yeah. No, I know what it's about. What's it about? It's about advice to novice therapists. Right, that's right. So think, um, you know, I, did you read the Jeffrey Kotler book? Uh, remember yeah. that back in the day? Back in the which one's that? It's, um, uh, Something like person being a person and a therapist, or yeah, know, yeah, 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 something like that. But it's um, a direct book to novice therapist students, yeah, and uh, you know all the things that are very common that one would say to Interesting. them. Interesting. And now I've wanted to write a book like this for a long time, and I've actually started it um, a long time ago. The uh, issue is that. Um, the reason why I think is because there's not enough books like this, and I think that you and I 
have a lot of things we could say. The reason why I want to write it with you is because the other book I wrote, uh, basically you at least put, you know, I don't know, 3% the labor into that book. <laughs> and so um, I was thinking about writing a book about it. And then I, and then I was thinking, well, you know what? I wonder what, it, I don't know what it'd be like to write a book with someone. I don't know either. Yeah. But I, what I would suspect it would be like would be, you know, I, I think we could work pretty well together. We, I I, we worked pretty well together on my book, yeah. obviously. And there were times when I would just be like, Bob, how do, what do I say? Yeah. And you'd be like, well, here's how I would write it. You would just write like a paragraph. Yeah. And I would sort of weave the two in. And sometimes I would say, oh, I would change this. And you wouldn't agree. And you didn't change it. And it's fine. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and you, you're a better writer than I am. Um, uh, and one might say I have a lot more contact with novice therapists. You so, do. so oh, I, one would definitely say that. So if, if we melded our two yeah. kind of skill sets. Yeah. Um, and, you know, another reason why is because, Bob, I want you to have a published book. Oh, <laughs> how fun. <laughs> because you have two books that you put a lot of effort into in the past <laughs> and uh, both never actually, you know, were on the shelf. And I, I, th- I think you, mm. you deserve to have something on the shelf. And I have this I have nice. a model of this with Umberto. Um, he's a musician as well and right. had written. It was a very prolific writer as much as I have been and home recording studio artist himself and had never published anything. Um, Whereas I, you know, would give you tapes and CDs CDs. and, you know, every year it was like, here's what I did this year, you know, and here's my 10 songs that I recorded. And, you know, I didn't care if people liked it or didn't like it. It was just like, you know, listen to it or not, you know, here, here's the thing. Cause this is before the internet when you couldn't really share things with anyway. And then me and Umberto got in a band together and, I was like, well, let's record a CD. And I was like, okay. And then we actually published it and actually got the CD and said, and, and Berto was like, this is the first time I've ever published anything. Um, and we were like, you know, in our late thirties at the time. And, and I thought, you know, that, that's such a crime that he hadn't published anything. And I think it's a crime that mm-hmm. you haven't published because i can imagine you know paragraphs so, or chapters solely written by you and mm. you know maybe suggested by me um where you know your wisdom and the way with the human language mm. or english language thanks um will transform lives you know really well, so exciting. and i i also you know the last book I wrote was evidence-based, so meaning that I had to cite everything. I had to look up, t- you know, literally thousands of research you articles. did a great job. This book, we would not frame it as evidence-based. It would, there would be evidence in there, sure. but it would be mainly wisdom-based, <laughs> experience-based, based, yeah. which would mean it much easier to write. And probably if we got into a flow state for a couple weekends, we could pump out like you know, half the book, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. If we got into the right kind of mode. Um, and so uh, for that reason, I think it'd be good too. Plus, you know, there's just so many things that I think novice therapists need to hear from experienced therapists that will help them. You yeah. know, this podcast, half of our listeners are clinicians. Yeah. And a lot of them will say like, you know, you've helped me get through the program. You've helped me uh, you're like another supervisor. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, you, 
you've helped me to feel more confident in what I'm doing. Right. Um, I feel normalized. Um, I'm inspired. Some people are inspired just to become therapists to begin with. So nice. I think that um, a book to really solidify all those ideas um, will be appreciated, I think. The audience I need. I think so. Yeah. Also, the last book that I wrote was on supervision, which is a pretty narrow uh, market. <laughs> Whereas advice to novice therapists, you know, I think, well, is a much broader market, yeah. at least for our listeners anyway. The supervision book is really good, guys. If you're a supervisor, how to be a supervisor, it's a good read. It's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. It's on Amazon. So you seemed hesitant over text, and now you're, you're into it? Well, yeah, I didn't know what, you know, sort of like, oh, surprise, surprise. Uh, okay, you know me, first surprise. Like, okay, cautious, cautious. Yeah, let's... Yeah, I'm interested. I mean, maybe we won't do it, you know maybe what I mean? We won't. But, you know, you're into trying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I like writing. Yeah. I'm excited. I, you know, uh, Bob Gettle, Kirk Honda. Oh, know. well, yeah, we'll figure that out. What do you call it? Like, uh, well, you just call it advice for novice therapists. Yeah. Or that would be the tagline. Maybe 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 it'll be some phrase like love it, love's executioner, such a great oh, title. Good title. You know, some kind of client story tag that will you know be the title of the book and then colon advice for novice therapists or yeah. something anyway yeah so I, I'm, I'm excited to you know talk about it let's see you know what kind of I'll, I'll send you maybe what i've already written anyway oh yeah good do it well so listeners out there uh watch out for that book which i'm sure will be um hot off the press in <laughs> five and a half years <laughs> If if I if the past has been any yeah. guide to the future, but um, you know that's writing, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.